Well, before we begin our time in God's Word today in Revelation chapter 2, which you can begin turning to right now, um, I want to let you know that next week we have a special speaker coming. Uh, You may be saying, but Roger, weren't you just away? Why another speaker? Well, two years ago, we scheduled David Brigner. He's the executive director of Jews for Jesus. And he'll be here uh, sharing with us a message about Yom Kippur, which is the Jewish Day of Atonement, the highest, holiest day, as well as Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. Both of these occur in the middle of September. And so it's a wonderful opportunity if you have Jewish neighbors, friends, co-workers, uh, people that you have been trying to share your faith in Jesus uh, as the promised Messiah with. This will be a wonderful Sunday to invite your friends here. And it's also a great Sunday for us as Gentile Christians to understand some of the background behind these Jewish feasts. So that'll be next Sunday here at Wayside. Well, last week we began a series in the book of Revelation. We were looking at the seven churches in Revelation, and we started with the church at Ephesus. And today I want to go back to this passage in Revelation 2, 1 through 7. If you were not here last week, I encourage you to go online to waysidechapel.org to the sermon section and listen to that because we covered a lot of background, both for the book of Revelation as well as the background of the culture in the city of Ephesus. I'm not going to be able to go over everything we talked about again today, but you'll remember that Ephesus was a very significant city, a major metropolis, uh, a power economically as well as in many ways. That's a 25,000-seat amphitheater, the ruins of you see there in Ephesus. The Temple of Artemis or Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there. It was where they worshipped the pagan goddess. And it was in this city that the church of Ephesus let their light shine in the darkness of that uh, decaying and dying uh, culture. And as they did so, they changed the culture. And much of the world is the, the worship of Diana, this pagan goddess, fell into disfavor and people turned to following the Lord Jesus Christ. So... As, as Jesus is the one writing this letter, you'll recall the Apostle John was the physical scribe, but it is God who is uh, dictating the letter through the Holy Spirit, through uh, the hand of John. He commended the believers there in Ephesus for many things they were doing well. Some of those we saw are in verses 2 to 3, where Jesus says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. He says as well in verse 6, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, the Nicolaitans, as we saw, were named after a former leader, a deacon in the early church, as the book of Acts tells us, who had caved into the culture of the day. And he was one who said, it's okay to go with the flow. It's okay to indulge in the immorality and the sin of the culture and to be a part of that. But the church at Ephesus, the believers stood against this heresy. You know, we live in a world that is much like that society. We have Nicolaitans in our day who say, hey, enjoy the culture. Uh, You're already saved as a believer. Why fight it? Go along with the flow. Grab all you can while you can. But what God tells us in verse 7, in in Revelation 2, 7 is, while there are pleasures in this world, he says these things are not uh, what count. These are things that are passing away. There's an eternal reward for those, he says in Revelation 2, 7. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
This is speaking of heaven. You know, Philippians 3, 2 tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. It says we are not residents of this world. We're all aliens who are just passing through. Our permanent home is in heaven. And so we shouldn't engage the world and its culture. Uh, we should live for eternity. Now, when I say we shouldn't engage, we're going to talk about how we are to uh, engage. Remember last week we saw we're to be counterculture Christians, that we are to be like the Ephesians, that we are to be uh, salt and light in, in the world in which we live. Now, as God write the, sent this letter to the believers there, there were many things he commended them for, things we just looked at. But you remember there was also a word of warning because he said, as good as things are, there's, there's also a danger. And we find that in verses 4 and 5. He said, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, we talked about lamps in that day. You remember that the way that an oil lamp of that day worked is there was some kind of a reservoir and they would fill it with olive oil and then they would make a wick out of flax or some other material, rope as you see in some of these, and it would soak up the oil and, and that is what burned. And as, over time, the oil would, would dissipate and you had to refill the reservoir in order to keep the light going. And we talked last time about how some of us are feeling spiritually dry some of us have a light that is flickering and in danger of going out because we've not been cultivating our relationship with Christ. We've not been uh, filling the reservoir, so to speak, by spending time in God's word, by meditating on it, by memorizing it, by spending time in prayer as we communicate and commune with God and, and fellowship as we talk to him. We don't do it by being around one another. The Bible tells us that we are not to forsake fellowshipping together as is a habit of some. Uh, but Hebrews says we're to gather together. We're to encourage and, and spur one another on to growth. And so some of us find ourselves going dry spiritually. And we saw that God gave us a solution. There in 4 and 5, he gave us three steps. He says, I want you to remember. I want you to repent. And I want you to repeat what you did before. Now, again, if you miss that message or need a review, I encourage you to go back and listen to what we talked about. But let me illustrate it this way. Many years ago, I was in one of those moods where I was decluttering. Some of you have gotten there where you just start throwing things out. And I said, you know, it's time to clean out some files. And one of the things I came to was uh, some files I had from when I was a police officer, my days in Dallas when I worked as a cop. And I was going through and I was throwing a bunch of stuff out and my wife Kim is there watching and I came to this file with all these newspaper clippings that had stories of things I had been involved in and I'm, I'm just kind of looking at them and throwing them in this throwaway pile and at one point my, my wife reached over and she grabbed a newspaper clipping and she pulls it out and puts it over kind of in a keep pile. Now, I glanced over at it, and I, and I thought, what is she doing? I mean, there, there, were pile, there were things in the throwaway pile of bank robberies, big cases I had cleared, you know, things I thought maybe were worthy of holding on to, but uh, the, the newspaper clipping that she pulled out was this one. Now, it's a bus accident. Uh, in downtown Dallas, a dart bus had been hit. You see a light pole is down. Now, it says, officer is hurt. It wasn't me. It was another guy named Harry Del Tufo, and he had stepped on a, on a live wire at the accident scene and got shocked. And you see on the right side, I'm, I'm helping to load him into the ambulance. Now, it's not even a good picture of me. It's, it's my back and side view. And, and I thought, why are you keeping this? 
And I said that to her, why, why are we keeping this one? And she just got a little smile. And then the light went on. So if you look a little closer, this isn't Photoshopped. I have the original if you want to see it. This, this would need to be Photoshopped today. But as she looked at this picture with a little smile, I, I, I just said, honey, he's not coming back. Now, I, I didn't mean Harry Del Tufo, the officer recovered. He was fine. Uh, I, I meant that. He's not coming back. Now, there, there are a number of reasons for that. But, you know, I was half the age I am now. I was working out all the time. Uh, I've got a bad shoulder from a ski injury. And you're going, yeah, excuses, excuses. And, you know, but let me tell you the number one reason he's not coming back. It's because I don't have the same motivation. You see, back then, that was a life and death matter to have muscles. Because when I was a cop on the street, there were times uh, you, you had to have big muscles to pull somebody's arm behind their back when they didn't want to be arrested, to outlast somebody in a fight. Uh, nowadays in the church, I don't have the same throwdowns as I had on the street. <laughs> so I don't need as big a muscle. But, you know, just simply remembering what was will not bring him back, will it? I have to repent. I have to, to stop, turn around, and go back to the gym. I have to repeat. I have to do what I did before where day after day for hours at a time lifting weights in order to bring back what was once there. Now, as I told you, uh, I don't have the same motivation. It's not a life or death matter. I would rather spend my time now on the life or death matter we see in Revelation 2.7, where it talks about those who are outside of the family of God, those who will not be with God for all eternity in heaven. And now as Christians, sometimes you may be sitting here today saying, you know, Roger, I, I hear what you're saying about my relationship with God, and it's not really a life or death matter, so that's why I'm not motivated. But I want to remind you that it is a life or death matter. First, at one level, for you personally. The scriptures are clear that we live in a world in which we have an enemy. His name is Satan. And we're told that he is a roaring lion that is roaming the earth seeking someone to devour. Now, the good news is, as a believer, God controls our enemy. He limits what Satan can do to us as Christians. But God still tells us we are in a spiritual battle. We are to be prepared. Ephesians tells us to put on the full armor of God. We are to be ready for those times where there is a throwdown with our enemy. And beyond that, we're in a life or death battle for those who do not yet know the Lord. There are those who are outside of the family of God. And while every one of us will die physically, if the rapture does not happen first where God takes us home, everybody will die a physical death. That's the first death. But the Bible says there is a second death for those who do not know the Lord. It's called eternal separation from God. In a, in a place that we call hell, the lake of fire, as you find there near Revelation 20 at the end of this book. And so what God tells us is we are in a life or death matter and we need to be prepared and we need to be sharing uh, the light and the love of God for those who don't know the Lord. Now, what happens sometimes is that as Christians, people don't want to be around us. Because we lack love. Remember, God said, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. Now, he's speaking to the Christians in terms of their relationship with him. 
But the Bible also talks about that the relationship we have with him where we have received his love is then to be shared with others. And there are individual believers and there are churches that have lost their love for God and we become toxic. We're good at standing for the truth. As we look at the church at Ephesus, look at what we find here. They, they, were, not, they were standing for the truth. These, these were men and women who were orthodox in their belief. They were opposing heresy. They were doing all the things. But Jesus says, you're in danger of losing your love. Do you remember there was a group of leaders during his days? Jesus walked the earth physically. As God was here among us, they were called the Pharisees. And they were known for being legalists. They were very good about the law. They could quote chapter and verse. They, they, they even tied their spices. One grain of salt for God, nine for me. You know, they were, they were all about the letter of the law. But Jesus said, y'all lack love. And, and they, were, they were opposed to what Jesus was doing. You eat and drink with sinners. If you only knew who this woman was, you know, all these things. And they were good about the truth, but they were toxic because they had no love. You know, we need to be those who stand for the truth. We need to stand when falsehood is proclaimed. We need to be orthodox in our belief and say you're compromising in the scriptures. When someone says it doesn't matter if you follow Allah or Buddha or any other person in the world, all all this pantheon of gods, because, hey, all roads lead to heaven, we need to recognize, no, we need to step in and speak the truth because people are on a, a broad path to destruction and they are far from God. Jesus says very clearly in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so we need to step in and love and share the truth that you are on a dead-end road where the bridge is out and you're headed for destruction. We need to be those who, who are standing for truth. But as we do so, we need to do it with love. You've heard me say before that truth can be like ice, crystal clear and just as cold. And if all we do is hammer people with the truth, we will drive them away But if we love them like Christ did, our our loves are going to be like a container of salt. Now, the Bible uses images for us. It says we're to be a light in a dark world. It says we're to be salt. Salt was a preservative. It not only enhances flavor, but in that day they didn't have refrigeration. Meat would spoil, and they would salt uh, meat to preserve it. And as you think about what salt is, there's a technical name for it, sodium chloride. Now, I'm not a chemist, but I've read what they say about it. And they say sodium is a a very active element. You always find it in combined form. And in the case of table salt, sodium has combined with chloride, chlorine. Some of you have opened a bottle of bleach and smelled it. It's offensive. It's it's poison. It can kill you if that is alone. And so what happens is some people are all about truth. And they're very toxic in their application. Now, others are on the other side. Uh, So, you know, love is flighty. It combines with anything. And so some people are all about love. You know, everything goes. And God doesn't want either extreme. What he says is we are to be like salt combined, truth and love together. And that's what we find uh, happening in so many places in the world. But like I said, we also have those who push others away because of their way of speaking the truth. Anybody ever heard of a church by the name of Westboro Baptist Church? Uh, yeah, you've maybe seen a clip or two on social media, right? I mean, they are, they are a group that are known not for their love, but their hate. And it's a message that turns people away from the gospel. 
And what God says to us is we are to be those who are speaking truth and love. Last time we talked about what love is. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and following, love is patient, love is kind, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. We saw those are verbs, actions that are required. But I want you to listen to the three verses that set up the definition of love. As God was talking about what love is, he says in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, verses 1 through 3, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. You see, love is an integral part of the message. Amy Carmichael once said, you can give without loving, but it is impossible to love without giving. You can give without loving, but it is impossible to love without giving. If we have the love in the, of the Lord in us, it should overflow. Listen to what 1 John 4, uh, chapter 4, verses 19 through 21 tell us. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. See, God gives us a picture. He says that we have received God's love. Jesus left heaven and he came to earth. He came here to demonstrate his love for us, to die for us, to save us from our sins. And what he says is, as those who have received the love of God, we are now to show that love to one another. And as we combine these, uh, process, the process here where God has loved us and we are loving God and it is manifest in our love for one another, what we demonstrate is the cross of Christ. We point people to who Jesus is. See, what the world tells us, it defines love as by saying, love is where you tolerate everything and accept everyone just as they are. Is that our culture? Is that what our society says? People will tell me, if you really love me, you'll accept me for the way I am. No questions asked, no judgment. Is that really love? When people tell me that, I say, you know, let me define love for you the way God does. You're right. Love accepts you for who you are. Love does love all people. We find that mentioned in Romans 5, 8, where it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you just like you are. He will take you baggage and all, sin and all. But friend, he loves you too much to leave you like you are. That's why God calls us to repent. He says, you're running down the wrong road. You're headed to destruction. And real love is where you stop and you turn around and you come back to me. He doesn't love us this much or this much, but this much. And he opened his arms wide and he died on the cross. And he says, I want you to come to me. I want you to be in real relationship with me. I want you to experience what real love is. And it's not accepting you uh, just the way you are and leaving you like that. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine I went to my doctor and I said, You know, Doc, I've 
I found this bump, this bump on my body, and it's probably nothing, you know. And the doctor says, uh, after examining me, you know, I, I, I want to run a few more tests. We're not real concerned, you know, at the moment, but I just want to make sure. Doctor runs some tests, and they come back, and the doctor looks at the report and goes, it's what I thought, it's cancer. Now, the doctor says uh, in his mind, he or she says, you know, if I tell Roger that this is cancer, it's going to hurt him. He's going to be sad. He's going to be concerned. And then when I talk to him about the steps, uh, there's going to be surgery. We're going to have to go in and cut, get the tumor out. But we're also going to have chemo to shrink the tumor and to try to kill off the cancer. That's going to make him sick. There's going to be all kinds of pain involved in the process. So the doctor says, you know, because I love Roger, I'm not going to tell him the bad news. I'm just going to hide the truth. I'm just going to tell him everything's good. You're all right. Is that love? There's a lawyer or two sitting here going, that's malpractice. And you see, what the world tells us is, as Christians, if we really love somebody, we won't make them sad. We won't upset them. We won't tell them the truth about their sin and the consequence that is coming, that the road is out because, hey, they're having such a good time. Why do I want to spoil the party? And truth be told, some of the reasons we don't tell anybody is we're more concerned, we're more of a coward for ourselves than anything. And we know that if we tell them, the person's going to say, well, you're judgmental, you're hypocritical, you're, you're not loving. And we just go, you know, I just don't even want to go there. I don't need that drama in my life, so I'm just going to go along with the flow. You're not being a friend. You're not demonstrating love. Because what the Bible tells us is, in Proverbs 27, 6, it says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, wounds, hurt, that is caused like a surgeon who cuts and says there's going to be pain to remove the disease. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. You see, if we really love somebody, we're going to have the hard conversations. We're going to risk that maybe they remove us from their life But the result may be that they receive the Lord of life and they eat from the tree of life and one day we get to have a reunion in heaven with them. Many of you have heard of a woman by the name of Madeline Murray O'Hare. She's a famous atheist from the past. She's the woman who was the catalyst behind public schools removing prayer from the classroom. And uh, she, as some of you may know the story of Madeline Murray O'Hare, she was killed one day by one of her followers. One of the atheists killed her to try to get some of her property and money and things. He uh, buried her in a barrel on a ranch here in Texas where her body was discovered. Now, her possessions that were left were one day auctioned off to satisfy claims against her estate, including the IRS said she owes back taxes. And uh, a person who bought her diaries went through them and shared some of the things that they said. In Madeline Murray O'Hare's diary, more than half a dozen times she had written this. Somebody somewhere loved me. Somebody somewhere loved me. Friends, what would have happened if some Christian somewhere had loved this woman? Could things have been changed? Maybe you know that one of her sons is a pastor today because somebody somewhere loved him and shared the love of Christ. But what could have happened with this woman? 
There's another woman I want to mention to you, another one who was a catalyst for a tragic decision. Her name is Norma McCorvey. She's the woman behind the Roe and Roe versus Wade, the decision that legalized abortion in our country. And Norma McCorvey's autobiography has this, pass, this section in it. It's a little bit long, but I want you to listen to it. In it, she says, I, I could outcuss the most crass of men and women. I could outdrink many of the Dallas Tavern's regulars, and I was known for my hot temper. When pro-lifers called me a murderer, I called them worse. When people held up signs of aborted fetuses, I spit in their face. Abortion was the sun around which my, my life orbited. I once told a reporter this issue is the only thing I live for. I live, eat, breathe, think everything about abortion. She says, then the fiery pro-life group called Operation Rescue moved in next door to the abortion clinic where I worked. I called Flip Venom, the brash and bold leader of Operation Rescue, Flip Venom. Flip called me responsible for the deaths of 35 million children, a number that has skyrocketed since she wrote this. McCorvey says that with Operation Rescue next door to the, the abortion clinic, the Dallas police settled in for an almost hourly routine. The bleep of a police siren and the flashing lights could be heard and seen several times a day for the next few months as Operation Rescue and the abortion clinic clashed out in the parking lot. Occasionally, the clashes would collapse into conversation. McCorvey says, during one friendly banter, I goaded Flip. I said, you know, what you need is to go to a good Beach Boys concert. Flip answered me, Miss Norma, I haven't been to a Beach Boys concert since 1976. Now listen to what she says here. That seemingly innocuous response shook me to the core. All at once, Flip became human to me. Before, I had thought of Flip as a man who did nothing but yell at abortion clinics and read his Bible. In fact, I even pictured him sleeping with his hands across his chest, Dracula-like with a big Bible tucked under his arm. That's a picture some people have of us as believers, by the way. The thought that he was a real person, a guy who had once even gone to a Beach Boys concert, never occurred to me. Now that it had, I saw him in a new light. McCorvey says, I continued teasing him. Come on, Flip. I didn't know you were even a sinner. You were ever a sinner. Oh, Miss Norma, Flip said, I'm a great big sinner, saved by a great big God. Of all the things I expected Flip to say, this wasn't one of them. I didn't like to think of him as human. But this unreal Flip was telling me he was a sinner, that he'd even gone to a Beach Boys concert. I couldn't connect that with the fanatics that I had made the rescuers out to be. And it took a while for me to look past the confrontational tactics for which Flip was known. As we chatted outside on the bench between our offices day after day, Flip began sharing some stories of his past, and out of his vulnerability, an unlikely friendship was born. He shared from his life, I'm a sinner just like you. I'm not perfect, just forgiven. Things where he pulled down the curtain and began to say, look, we're the same. Now she says that as this happens, the door begins to open. And then she goes on to share about where a real breakthrough comes, which was through a seven-year-old girl named Emily, who was the daughter of one of the Operation Rescue volunteers. McCorvey says, Emily's blatant affection, frequent hugs, and direct pursuit disarmed me. The little girl's interest was all the more surprising, considering that Emily made it very clear that her acceptance of me was an acceptance of my lifestyle. Did you hear that? 
Her acceptance of me was not an acceptance of my lifestyle. This seven-year-old girl is demonstrating love and speaking truth at the same time. And in time, through the love that was shown to her, Norma McCorvey accepted Jesus Christ as her Savior. And she turned from working for the abortion industry to becoming a pro-lifer who has been fighting to overturn the evil of abortion. What happened? Somebody somewhere loved her. Somebody somewhere who had received the love and grace of God showed it to somebody else who needed the love and grace of God. There was truth spoken, but with love. And as you think about what God calls on us to do, there are people this morning who walk through the doors of Wayside who came in here hoping that somebody would love them. You know, as a church, we, we make sure that we preach the truth of God's word, uncompromising in that. So we're not worried about people hearing the truth. What we worry about as pastors and leaders and others is, will people feel the love of God when they walk through the doors of this church? You know, I shared with you last week that I visited 10 other churches during my sabbatical. And in four of the 10 churches, not a single person talked to me from the time I walked on the property to the time I left. Four out of 10. Now, I don't think I look very scary. And I know as a pastor, and it breaks my heart that there are times somebody walks on the property of Wayside Chapel and nobody talks to them. Welcoming somebody to our church is not just the job of the greeters or the parking lot people or the ushers or that moment where you, hey, glad you're here, and then you turn your back on them and make clear you really don't know they exist. There are people who walk through the doors of this church this morning that have all kinds of things going on in their life, and they walked in here wondering, what is this church going to be like? Will I be welcomed here? Will, I be friend- Will people be friendly? Will they really genuinely care about me? You know, today was our promotion Sunday over in the children's and student area. And I talked to my kids yesterday, and I said, listen, you, one of my daughters is in junior high, another daughter's in high school. And I said to them, not because you're the pastor's daughters, but because you're a person, a believer in Christ, I want you to think about something. There are going to be new students who walk into your classrooms tomorrow at Wayside. There are going to be freshmen coming up into the high school and you, you, you upper-class students have a choice. You can go, oh, the fish are here, the freshmen, you know. Or, and they're scared. They're coming up, you know. But you all have the opportunity, and the others of you hiding up there in the balcony, you have the opportunity <laughs> to... Um, you have the opportunity to say, hey, welcome. We are so glad you are here. I said that to my junior high daughter. Because those kids are walking into that room just wondering, is somebody going to talk to me? Two of my kids started school last week. Another one starts tomorrow. Many of you are in school, starting college, going into your campuses tomorrow if you haven't already started. There are going to be kids walking the halls of your school for the first time. They're going to be coming on campus knowing no one. They're going to be sitting at the lunch table, you know, doing this with their sandwich because they don't want to look at anybody. They don't know anybody. And you have a choice. Will you open the circle just a little and say, hi, how are you? Come sit with me. What's your name? What's going on? Where are you from? 
Somebody moves into the cubicle or the office down the hall from you at work, and you can do the same thing. You can just blow past them or say they'll figure it out, or you can just say, hey, welcome. We're glad you're here. We have an opportunity, not just in the doors of Wayside, to look somebody in the eye and say, we are so glad you're here. What is your story? We have that opportunity out in the world. And we have to ask ourselves as believers, are we going to demonstrate the love of God with one another that we ourselves have already received? And this is what God is saying to us as a church. He wants us to do that. You know, what if Jesus were to walk in here today? What if Christ were to come through the back doors with his entourage, the poor, the prostitutes, the tax gatherers, the people of his day who are like the homosexuals, like the abortionists of our day? What would we do? Would we turn our back on them? Would we, he eats and drinks with sinners. If he only knew who this woman was, it's touching his feet, you know? Do we turn our back on people? Or do we demonstrate the love of God? As we look at people who are different than us, you know, we, we have uh, two unique services. We have a blended traditional at the first and a contemporary here. And I talked to the, the 915 crowd this morning and I said, what if somebody walked in here this morning that's pierced and tatted and has plugs in their ears and on and on? Would you welcome them? I need to talk to some of you and say, what if somebody wearing a suit and tie and dressed nicely came in here this morning? Would you welcome them? I mean, do we turn our back on people who are different than us? Or do we say, you know, they're just like us. They're looking for somebody to love them. They're looking for somebody to see them, to know them. And, and, and do we really want them to know our Savior? Are we willing to open the circle? Are we willing to step out and love somebody who's different than us? When it comes to us as a church, I've got a bag of marbles here, so proof positive I haven't lost my marbles yet. Here they are. Now, too many churches and too many of us as individuals who make up the church are like this bag of marbles. As you look at this bag of marbles, it's, 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 they have a hard protective shell. I can, I can do this with them, and you know what? They're, they're still the same. They, they just bump up against each other, and, but, you know, they're still separate. And so many times people walk into a church, and this is what they experience. We kind of bump up against each other. We're here. Oh, you know, let me move my bulletin so you can sit a little closer to me because it's kind of crowded today. You know, and the whole time we're thinking, I wish they would go sit up front where there's an open seat, you know. And this is what people experience. But what God says to us is he wants us to look more like this bunch of grapes. The Bible is full of metaphors. We're light, we're salt. He talks about how Christ is divine and we're to abide in him and as we do so, we'll be fruitful. He, he uses this image for us as, as a church that this, this is who we are. And if, if I were to do the same thing to these grapes this morning, I'm not going to. If I were to start squeezing them, what's going to happen? They're going to burst. They're going to mix together. Things are going to get messy. The juice is going to mix together. But you know, that's, that's where you get the good stuff from, right? You have to bust the grapes. They have to come up and rub up against each other and then get mashed together. And this is the image God gives to us as a church. He wants us to do life together, and it can get messy at times. He doesn't want us just to come in here and act like everything's okay, that we've got it all put together. Some of those people in suits and ties and nice dresses and things you look at and you go, well, they got it all. Friends, they're as hurting as you are. 
And what God says is he wants us to be willing to get in each other's lives. I think of a, a young man who was here at Wayside about two years ago. And he came up here after one service. And, and this young man was pierced and tatted and plugged. He had a big fish hook through his nose. And, you know, he was wearing raggedy clothes, you know, on purpose. And he came up to the front and he's talking to me. And as I'm talking to him, I could tell he was, he was trying to draw out a confrontation. And he finally gets real close to me and he goes, look at me. I said, I'm looking at you. And he says, aren't you scared? I didn't tell him I had been a cop, but I, I just, <laughs> I said, should I be? And he goes, look at me. I said, I see you. And then I said to him, I said, I said could I, would you mind if I touched you for a moment? And he goes, well, if you want. And so I reached over and I touched him on the chest where his heart is. And I said, you're telling me to look at you. And I said, I'm looking right here. Because 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, God sees the heart, not the externals. And I said, you know what God sees right now is somebody who needs him. Somebody who's hurting. Somebody who's feeling uh, just this anger that's manifesting itself. And I said, but, but God wants to come into your life. Well, to fast forward the story, the young man accepted Christ up here. Now, let me tell you something. It wasn't just a conversation I had with him. After he did that, he said, you know, this church is different. He said, I've been going over there in the, the college ministry for a few weeks, and they've been nice to me. And he said, I've run into people in the halls, yes, even some of our senior saints with white hairs. <laughs> he said, and they've been nice to me. And it was through the love of Christ that the door was getting opened. And, and his heart was open because people here were willing to say, you know what? We're going to be this instead of this. Now, as I said, Wayside is not a perfect place. We have things we need to work on. I mentioned the abortion industry a minute ago. Let me tell you something. Some of the largest number of women who have abortions are believers. And you know why? Because we as Christians are good at when a woman is in an unwed pregnancy situation, we demonstrate judgment rather than love. And women and families of, I've, I've had parents tell me, my daughter is pregnant, we have to leave the church because we're afraid of what our friends will think of us as parents. And so what happens is we push women out I'm not condoning the sin. It's a mistake. But you know what I tell a woman who comes in and confesses to me, Roger? I'm pregnant. I made a stupid choice and I'm pregnant. And I say to them, I want you to choose life for your child. And when a woman is willing to go through an unwed pregnancy because she chooses life for her baby, we need to surround and celebrate that. Not accept her lifestyle, but say to her, you made a mistake just like me. And you know what? We're here for you. And we're going to walk with you through it. And there are other women here today that have had an abortion. And you're sitting here like a marble with a hard shell hiding it and saying, if people only knew who I was. I want to tell you something. We have other women here just like you. We have a ministry called Redeemed and Restored. It's, it's a post-abortion healing ministry. And it is run by other post-abortive women, women who made the tragic decision to end their pregnancy. 
But in time and through God's word and love, they have come to understand forgiveness and healing. You don't have to hide your shame. You don't have to be somebody who thinks you're damaged goods and God will never have anything to do with you again. He loves you. And he offers you forgiveness. And if you go to our website, to the women's ministry tab, you will find a link for this. It's a confidential ministry and it will tell you how you can get in contact with this ministry and find the hope and healing God offers to you. As a church, we have an opportunity to also help. Uh, Many of you know who Michael Jr. is. He's a, a great Christian comedian and we're partnering with the Pregnancy Resource Center to host Michael Jr. here at Wayside Chapel. Uh, you see here on October 10th at 6.30. You can get tickets at sapregnancy.org. Uh, Wayside is donating the use of our facilities. 100% of the proceeds are going to the Crisis Pregnancy Center to help save lives. Not only of the unborn children, but many women come to faith as they go into that ministry to find counseling. There are Some of you here are volunteers in that ministry. Uh, this is an opportunity you have. Now, the tickets, uh, they're, they're selling tickets. Again, 100% of that goes to fund the ministry. So if you're interested uh, in having a great night out, and this is an opportunity to invite even your unsaved friends. Uh, if you've heard Michael Jr., I mean, he is, he is a great comedian. Uh, and he, he will be able to thread the needle of truth and love. Uh, and you'll have a great night. It's not just come and, oh, my gosh, it's going to be lame. It's going to be fun. I'm going to be here. Um, if you uh, would like to serve, we need ushers. We need people to serve. This sanctuary is going to be uh, prayerfully full with, you know, people. So contact Will Davis if you'd like to be an usher for the event. It's another way to serve. You can make donations. If you don't want to come to the event, you can pray for it, and you can make a donation to the Crisis Pregnancy Center. This is just one of the many ways that we're reaching out at Wayside Chapel. Last week, we talked about ways we're trying to be salt and light in the community. What I want you to do today as we come to a close is to look at your own life and ask yourself, how are you showing love? How are you being that point of light and how are you demonstrating love to others? In your school, your workplace, within the doors of Wayside, in the home and neighborhood in which you live. Ask yourself if you are one who has received the love of the Lord and are you growing in that relationship with him and then are you demonstrating it to others? Should just take a moment to let God speak to your heart now as you talk to him in prayer of ways maybe that you can raise the temperature of your love. And then I want to close this in prayer. So take a moment now to talk to God and I'll close this in prayer. Dear God, we thank you for your word and for your call for us to be just like your son, Jesus. To be those who love. May we be those who demonstrate love as we speak truth. Father, may you move us out of our seats and into each other's lives. Would you make Wayside a place that is more than just a bag of marbles where we come in and bump up against each other and then leave? Would you make us like a bunch of grapes? 
First is those who have been abiding in you and growing. And then are those who are willing to come together and even be crushed and squeezed as we share our lives together. Jesus, you, you were crushed. You were broken. You were pierced for our transgression, as Isaiah 53 says, to save us. As one who has shed your blood to save us, may we be those who are willing to be squeezed a little and have life-on-life ministry that is real and messy. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. May we be those, Lord, who love well, who demonstrate your love to a dark and dying world who needs to know you. We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.